Formosa Files is sponsored by the Frank C. Chen Cultural Foundation. Frank Chen, Chen Qi Tuan, served as the mayor of Kaohsiung City from 1960 to 1968 and founded the Kaohsiung Medical College. Formosa Files. You're listening to Formosa Files. I'm John Ross. I'm Eric Michael Smith. And John, recently we were talking about what we thought was the best known Taiwanese company. Best known as in being a household name worldwide, not just world famous in uh, where you live in Jai. So <laughs> TSMC or Taiwan's Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, that gets a lot of attention. And there's a good case to be made for Honghai Electronics, which is also known as Foxconn. But the components that they make used in iPhones and iPads and such, they're not sold under their own brand name. For actual branded products, there are computer manufacturers Acer and Asus, and then there's Giant Bicycle. But you said Evergreen. The Evergreen Group has various businesses, most important of which is Evergreen Marine, its container shipping company. So you said Evergreen. Um, make your case, if you will. The modern world is built on trade, on shipping, container shipping, and from port to factory and port to warehouse, we see these containers on trucks and freight trains. And on the sides of these containers, we see the names of the shipping companies. And quite often that name is evergreen. The containers are green and they have the word evergreen written in white capitals in every corner of the world, the name evergreen. Okay, so you make a pretty strong case for evergreen being the most visible Taiwanese company around the world. But does it count if most people seeing the name don't even realize it's a Taiwanese company? Um, a slight weakness in my argument. Yeah, evergreen is kind of well known without being known. Mm. Perhaps we can call it the most internationally visible Taiwanese company. Yes, although uh, uh, some of Evergreen's uh, world visibility uh, sometimes is of the unwanted kind. In 2021, an Evergreen container ship got stuck across the Suez Canal, blown sideways by strong winds, I believe. The ship blocked this vital trade route for six days. There was a traffic jam of hundreds of ships and world supply chains were interrupted by this seriously. It was front page news. And there in the photographs were white capital letters on a green hole spelling evergreen. Yeah, uh, I'd like to put a positive spin on that. Okay, like uh, all publicity is good publicity, that kind of thing? No, I'm thinking of the size of the ship. How big does a ship need to be for the bow to be stuck on one bank, the stern on the other bank, stuck across the entire width of the Suez Canal? The ship is a maritime marvel, 400 meters long. 400 meters? Yes, one of the largest container ships in the world. And Evergreen has a fleet of perhaps a dozen of these monster ships. And they just got an even bigger one last month. It's a testament to the importance of Evergreen Marine Corporation, which has about mm, 200 ships and has been one of the world's leading shipping companies for over four decades. So let's take a look at the Evergreen Maritime Empire. It started actually with just one ship in 1968. 
The company was founded and built up by Zhang Rongfa, who was born in 1927, three decades into the Japanese colonial period, and he passed away in 2016 at the age of 88. A long and productive career, but we're going to focus more on his early life. Yes, because I think we can see very early on the makings of the man, personality and character traits, the strong influence of his mother and the hardships and opportunities of his teenage years. So Zhang Rongfa was 10th generation Taiwanese. His ancestors had crossed the Taiwan Strait from Fujian in China to settle on the island of Penghu. His father joined a shipping company and was posted to Jilong and then Suao, a small port in the northeast of Taiwan. The family followed, and the father worked as a carpenter on board vessels plying the Suao to Jilong route. Zhang Rongfa was born in Suao in 1927, the third child of the family. He had two Penghu-born elder brothers, later two younger brothers and two younger sisters. His father was often away at sea, so uh, young Rongfa had an especially strong relationship with his mother. He writes in his memoir, Tides of Fortune, that my mother had a profound influence on my attitudes and conduct in life. She was a woman with a heart of gold and was an excellent housekeeper who took care of the family practically single-handedly. Cleanliness was her second nature, as our ship-shaped home would attest to. She cared for and educated her children with total dedication. And he says also that although our mother doted on us, she was nevertheless a disciplinarian, placing considerable emphasis on proper conduct and moral principles. She constantly reminded us of the importance of being honest to other people. And if we should tell lies, we would expect punishment from her. My mother believed in karma and providential justice, a result of the influence of traditional religious beliefs on her life. She faithfully drilled into us right from an early age, the virtues of being benevolent and charitable. Zhang Rongfa lived his first seven years in Suao, a happy, carefree childhood. Yes, even with a strict mother, you know, so many boys they have in their family, and you can, you can sort of just disappear and have some adventures. Rongfa remembers one incident playing with some other boys near a creek uh, when he slipped and fell down an embankment and knocked himself unconscious on some boulders. He remained in a coma for three days and three nights uh, before finally regaining consciousness. And he says also in his uh, autobiography that, quote, strangely enough, after the accident, I began to develop a distinct loathing and revulsion for all kinds of seafood. The phenomenon had probably emanated from the shock I sustained during the fall. In fact, I later abstained from eating seafood altogether. Hmm, very odd. Uh, when he was seven years old, his father was posted to work on board ships berthed in Geelong Harbor, and uh, the whole family moved back to Geelong. So he's seven years old, and that means it's time to go to elementary school. And he had good things to say about his Japanese-style education, both in terms of learning and also building character. He says that, quote, instead of ornate portraits of state leaders adorning the walls of classrooms, there were pictures of people who had displayed determination and moral correctness, thus serving as good role models for the students, end quote. 
He recalls pictures showcasing true stories of filial piety. For example, a son who every day carried his infirm mother on his back so she could get medical treatment. And on the wall, there was a picture of the Japanese so-called peasant sage, Santoku Ninomiya, a boy who was too poor to go to school but determined to learn. And while collecting firewood from the mountains every day, he would read textbooks. You can see statues of this boy in Japanese schools, book in hand and back bent under a heavy load of firewood. I like that one. Uh, I wish people today were half as keen to read books. Agreed. So as much as uh, young Rongfa enjoyed learning, family finances meant he had to get a job rather than go to high school. He worked as an office boy, I think at the Minami Nippon Steamship Company in Geelong. And Minami means south in Japanese, so that would be South Japan Steamship Company. And he took evening classes in Taipei. So he's not carrying firewood and reading, but he's pretty hardcore. Finished work at 4.30, rushed to catch a train to Taipei, studied, and caught the last train back to Geelong. His job enabled him to pay for his classes and also help with family expenses. Life was tough. Japan had been fighting a full-scale war in China, and after Pearl Harbor, December 41, fighting against the Allies too. Life was tough and food was scarce. Staples like rice were rationed, and this was done on a kind of class system. Depending on the class that your family was in, you'd get different amounts. The Japanese households were the A class and received the biggest rations. Japanese-speaking Taiwanese families whose members had adopted Japanese names and culture fell into the B category and were given the second biggest rations. And then there was category C, ordinary Taiwanese families who received the least. You know, thinking about that, that's pretty good encouragement to go out there and get yourself a Japanese name, no? Yeah, uh, and many poor Taiwanese families tried to get promoted from the lowly C class up to the B class. And Zhang Rongfa's family, no exception, they took Nagashima as their family name, and he got the personal name of Hatsu. The war is tough, but it did create some opportunities for Taiwanese. In late 1943, he's age 16, he becomes a staff employee in the head office in Taipei. These late war years saw a lot of staff shortages, as most of the Japanese had been conscripted into the army. And this was the case at the steamship company headquarters office. Taiwanese were not being conscripted, and it's a nice, safe job at an office. Yes and no. Japanese shipping companies, including this one, had a very sensible policy of requiring their employees even clerical workers, to serve on board a vessel for a time in order for them to become familiar with the practical aspects of shipping. So early 1944, he gets a notice. He's going to be working on a passenger and cargo liner as a general clerk. The ship does a run between Taiwan and Hainan Island in southern China. Ooh, that's a dangerous uh, trip, uh, especially because it's wartime and U.S. submarines are prowling those waters. Yeah, to avoid being torpedoed, ships had to zigzag this way and that. And he says that as a result, a voyage that normally required 10 days would uh, often take more than double that time. 
and such was the fear of being sunk at any moment that the crew always wore life vests and warm clothing. And they're not being paranoid. One of his brothers working on a vessel which was sunk during her passage through the Taiwan Strait was left adrift in very cold waters for three days and nights. When rescue finally came, he was almost unconscious and his body had turned blue due to the cold. Three to four days later in the hospital, he comes to, he survived, but his health was pretty much ruined. It's dangerous on land too. As a vital port, Geelong was getting heavily bombed. Zhang Rongfa had to work in Taipei, so he evacuated there. His mother and younger siblings, I think, evacuated to Ilan. So not long after that evacuation came the devastating news of his father's death. He had been on a supply vessel, which was attacked and sunk. According to an eyewitness account, his father had tried to swim ashore, but was shot by Filipino soldiers or guerrillas or defenders. That's 1944. Zhang Rong Fa's 18 years old. His father's pension is really meager. His older brothers are both married and have their own families to support. So the responsibility of looking after his mother and younger siblings is suddenly on his shoulders. And a year later, the Japanese surrendered, uh, new rulers in Taiwan, a new language, Mandarin, Chinese, and he found himself temporarily unemployed. But he managed to find work. This was on a banana carrier that went between Taiwan and Japan. From Kaohsiung port, bananas from Kaohsiung and Pingdong were shipped up to Japan and to other places for a very long time. Bananas down here were our, uh, one of our biggest crops. Yeah, uh, he had a 15-year career as a sailor, as a banana carrier, starting at the bottom, a humble position of tally clerk. So he's responsible for recording the ship's cargo. He worked his way up and educated himself. He had a great appetite for reading professional books on ships and shipping. When in port, most of his crewmates would uh, go out drinking, but Zhang Rongfa would head to a bookstore. Yeah, because he had a dream. And that dream was to run his own business with perhaps just one small ship for a start. So in 1961, he partnered with friends to establish a shipping company, left that company and again partnered with others in 1965. But again, he had differences over how to run things and future ambitions. He wanted to move beyond regional trade of just this banana route and Southeast Asian timber for Japan. In 1968, he founded Evergreen Marine. He started with a single dilapidated ship, but had his heart set on international trade with new ships, and uh, he wanted to ride the wave of container shipping. An early important decision was seeing an opportunity in the neglected Middle East route. I say route, you say route. I, I say both, strangely. Yeah, I go back and yeah. forth. <laughs> In any case, uh, his fleet grew very quickly, and he was constantly adding new customers and new routes and routes. By the end of the 1970s, he was sending container ships to Europe and to both the east and west coasts of the U.S. His proudest moment, however, came in 1984 when he started two 80-day round-the-world services. So we're talking about ships circling the globe in an easterly direction, while others did it the other way, westward. These ships, huge container ships traveling at high speed, departed every 10 days. So in a very remarkably short time, Evergreen had become a world leader in shipping. And with the oceans conquered, 
Evergreen expanded into other areas beyond the shipping industry, including hotels and air transport. Eva Airlines, although the company would very much prefer us to say EVA Airlines, but no, um, yeah, Eva sounds better. And also it's a syllable thing. You know, fewer syllables mm. always work in the end. Eva Airlines began operations in 1991 and soon established itself as a major airline, both for passenger flights and cargo. They have new aircraft, always clean, excellent staff. I've always had good experiences with them. And their main Taiwan competition was China Airlines, which despite the name is actually Taiwan's national carrier. And Eva was lucky in a, in a horrible way in having this other airline as its competitor. Yeah. In the dozen years following the founding of Eva Air, China Airlines suffered four fatal accidents, three of which were really bad, over 200 fatalities in those three accidents. Yes. And in contrast, Eva Airlines had a perfect record and, as of this recording, still does. So the success of the Evergreen Group, especially the shipping company, is just hands down remarkable. He ran it well. He made good decisions, sometimes risky, but they paid off. And he seems to have combined a head for details, but also was able to look at the big picture. He worked his way up from the bottom had a genuine lifelong passion for shipping and the sea, and he had the character and competency which inspired confidence. Right. Big ships are expensive, and in those early years of expansion, his success came down to convincing lenders that he was both trustworthy and reliable. No loans means no ships means no quick expansion. So what did Zhang Rongfa attribute his success to. These guys, John, usually say hard work and determination. They very seldom mention luck. That's the case here too. He says something like, uh, luck played absolutely no part in our success. Rather, it was the huge amount of time and painstaking efforts my colleagues and I selflessly put in. And he mentions unwavering determination. Okay. Okay. I don't question the hard work and the determination, but looking at the wider economic picture, he seems to me at least to fall into a category of super successful business people who managed to build up massive empires from very humble beginnings. You know, they have no university education. I'm thinking people, the likes of uh, Wang Yongqing of Formosa Plastics. That kind of story seems like something particular to the past, not just a rags to riches story, but the building of something useful, something real, companies that employ a lot of people, not just getting rich from real estate or some internet service app thing. And of course, this is not just a Taiwan thing, but it's also true in the West. Yeah, I agree completely. But be careful what you wish for. Some of the social mobility and business opportunity of the past came from horrific war uh, and the post-war recovery. So war opens up new vacancies, right, from uh, people who have died. And afterwards, there's so much growth potential, the need to rebuild, the economy starting from such a low base, and you've got demographic growth. Good points. But although Zhang Rongfa didn't see his great wealth as coming from luck, he was grateful, very grateful, and also generous with his money. 
He was a great philanthropist, his foundation providing scholarships and disaster aid. He funded a free magazine promoting public morals, a symphony orchestra, and a couple of maritime museums. So, John, we've leaned heavily on his memoir for the information here that we've got so far. But with a memoir, there's a certain amount of material that's left out, some self-censorship, you might call it. So what do you think he left out? The memoir is called Tides of Fortune, and it's part of a series on entrepreneurs of Asia. So with this business focus, it's not a surprise he's left out some personal family details. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Like personal details such as having a second wife or mistress. Exactly. Another telling feature is that although he talks about morality at great length, God and heaven, this, Buddhism and the Tao, that. We don't get specifics. We don't get the name of temples. He goes to his denomination. So he's religious, but he's hiding or not promoting at least the name of the religion, suggesting something a little bit perhaps non-mainstream. Yes, I'll give you a clue. Vegetarian cafeterias. And he actually became a vegetarian when he turned 60. Vegetarian cafeterias. Um, I eat there almost every day. And I happen to know that uh, many of those are run by followers of Yi Guangdao. Yeah, you're right. So what year was that memoir written? The English translation was published in 1999. The Chinese original, I think, 1997. So just a decade after martial law was lifted. Okay, I can understand his reluctance to highlight the fact that he's part of what was not long before that time, an illegal cult. Yes, uh, illegal. And in the early KMT decades here, it was suppressed. But later, it was perhaps more a case of Buddhist organizations not wanting competition. Mm. Yiguan Dao is an interesting syncretic religion, mostly combining Confucianism, Buddhism, and Taoism. The Tao, or the Way, has a personal manifestation in the Venerable Mother in Yiguan Dao. So this Venerable Mother is equivalent to God in Christianity. And in Yiguan Dao, in their religious views, the Venerable Mother created the universe. Zhang Rongfa was an important figure in the religion here. And when he wrote his book, almost all of the evergreen managers were uh, fellow Iguandao members. It's very interesting, Iguandao. It began in China in the late 1800s, but only really became big in the 1930s and 40s. Yes, that was under Zhang Tianran, the 18th patriarch. When he died in 1947, the sect broke down into two main factions. There's the Great Mistress Faction. Sorry, I forget the other one. Uh, it was the First Wife Faction. And in Taiwan, the, the Mistress Section prevailed. Yeah, she actually moved to Taiwan in the early 50s. Anyway, I think you know why I'm mentioning these uh, succession problems when uh, leaders pass away. Mm, indeed, I do. Secession is often a problem for tycoon empires, as it has been throughout history for kings, and et cetera, et cetera, queens. When evergreen shipping tycoon magnate Zhang Rongfa died on the 20th of January 2016 at the age of 88, there was a bit of a family dispute. There were four children from his first wife, 
and a son from his second wife. And there was something of a struggle over Eva Airlines. Um, it's it's complicated. Yeah, that second wife was the mistress originally, right? When the, the son was born. But it, yeah, it's complicated. So for anything complicated, we can just promise to cover it in a future episode. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. We will cover that in the history of airlines in Taiwan. We got plenty of good material. Or, or we can just say that we've run out of time, which we have. Well, we have. Okay. Um, I'll end with a big thank you to Zhang Rongfa for his many contributions to Taiwan and to all the hardworking, evergreen employees. Excellent. You've been listening to Formosa Files. Thanks for doing so. I'm Eric Michael Smith. I'm John Ross. 